This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. What's one of the brightest spots in the slow and wobbly recovery since the Great Recession? Look up at the sun. Solar jobs in the U.S. have more than doubled in five years. There are more people working to get clean power from the sky than getting oil and gas out of the ground. The solar industry added 35,000 jobs in just 2015 and now employs more than 200,000 people, according to CNN Money. There are many other kinds of jobs in the clean energy economy as well. Large corporations are hiring people to measure and reduce their carbon footprint all the way from their factories to their stores. Architects are busy designing buildings that use little or even net zero energy and water. Food companies are sourcing food locally and working to reduce waste. On the show today, we'll explore careers in the clean energy economy that is growing jobs and reducing carbon pollution. In the second half hour, we'll hear from a career advisors about how to get a job in the clean economy and what are the hottest sectors. First, we hear from three young professionals who are climbing the green ladder at fast-growing companies in the Bay Area, Cliff Bar, Facebook, and Solar City. Keely Wax is director of communications at Cliff Bar. Lyrica McTiernan is sustainability manager at Facebook, and Charlotte McCoslin is manager at Solar City. Please welcome them to Climate One. Lyrica McTiernan, let's begin with you. You grew up in Maine and then came to the Presidio Graduate School. Tell us about that journey. Sure. So, hi, everybody. Uh, I grew up on the coast of Maine and loved hiking, loved being outdoors. I think that's where my passion for sustainability and doing this type of work really started. And went to Oberlin College in Ohio, did an undergraduate degree in environmental studies, and from there did a number of things related to environmental education and green building, lived in Chicago for a bit, was kind of bouncing around, and then ended up here in 2007, where I worked for the Goldman Environmental Prize. It's a local NGO, and I was working on their nomination process and recognizing the amazing work that grassroots environmental leaders um, do all over the world. Um, I felt as though I wanted to be contributing more I was so inspired by all the work these people were doing. And for me, I think that meant getting a few more tools in my tool belt. So I decided to go to business school. I went to Presidio, um, and I think really that prepared me well. I feel like I can speak the language of finance in a way that I couldn't before. Um, I can be at the table in some of these programmatic conversations in a way that I think is very valuable for somebody in a sustainability career. And I made the transition about five and a half years ago to Facebook, where I now work on our sustainability team. It's about 10 people, and I lead a team focused on metrics. We do our carbon footprint accounting. We do waste and water and energy measurement, management, looking for ways to minimize our environmental footprint. And we all end up wearing a lot of different hats, and so I end up doing a lot of different other kinds of work as well. But it's a really great pleasure and honor to work in this sector. I think it's such an important thing to be doing. Charlotte McCoslin, you started off with your career focused on China. How did you make that pivot to, uh, to clean tech? Uh, yeah, so I, um, 
I went to Swarthmore College, another uh, small liberal arts school, and studied Chinese in China. And, um, and throughout, and part of the reason that I studied Chinese and then moved to China was because of my interest in um, saving the world from climate change and uh, care for the environment. And I knew that any conversation about energy and the planet uh, would need to involve Asia. And so I, I learned Chinese, and I moved to China for three years uh, and focused mainly on, uh, in the private sector, in business, trying to learn the language uh, of, of the private sector. Um, and after that, I went to business school to, to um, you know, get even more fluent in that language uh, and decided at the end of two years it was time to go uh, both feed into clean tech. Uh, so I moved out here um, without a job uh, because I knew that this would be the easiest place to do that. Uh, worked on building up my network, uh, worked with alumni groups, um, joined Young Professionals in Energy, um, and, and found a job uh, in software, um, selling software to the energy industry. Learned the language of energy, um, and from there segued into my current role in Solar City, um, where I'm on the commercial sales team. Solar City, I think it's the nation's largest uh, solar solar company. Uh, Keely Wax, you were working on a Central American free trade agreement at Washington D.C. and decided you wanted to change course in your career. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for referring to us as young early. In your <laughs> That doesn't happen all that often now, so it's appreciated. People um, on the radio can't see, so you're young, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I, uh, I did my undergraduate studies at, at Cal, at Berkeley, um, and, then I w- uh, and then I went to graduate school. And in between my second, uh, first and second year of graduate school, I went back to D.C. and did a fellowship at the State Department. And I was tasked with um, working on public diplomacy around the Central American Free Trade Agreement. And in that, um, one of the issues that continued to uh, complicate the, the negotiations was, uh, were environmental issues. Um, and it, I, I'd been a lifelong surfer, so I'd always been obviously passionate about the environment. It'd been a big part of my life. But it wasn't until um, that moment, really, that I decided, you know, this could be a really interesting career and something I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, and that I developed a skill set through public diplomacy to actually go into communications. So from that, um, I actually went in uh, to public relations and communications and developed a different type of language, a different type of skill set that I think that I thought would be really important and then apply it to um, to topics I care about. So from there, I started a clean tech PR practice at a large uh, PR firm, and then after that, I joined PG&E, which is uh, kind of like a rite of passage um, <laughs> if you want to work in energy um, and really understanding the language of energy and really understanding the issues and building a network. And then from there, I went on and, and managed uh, PR for a, uh, a large solar uh, firm and ran public affairs and PR there and then, and then joined Cliff Bar. You've all talked about language and the different languages in, the, in these different uh, uh, sectors. It's all, you're all speaking English, but, but different languages. And, and Lyrica McTiernan, uh, you say that what drives you deeply is a, is a deep love for nature. So when you go into a meeting in Facebook, do you go in and say, we got to save the earth? <laughs> you know, I think you can say that, but that can't be the only thing that you say. I think it's entirely reasonable for people to understand kind of where your passion comes from. I mean, being realistic and being who you are is one of, the, I think, the really valuable things you can do when you go into a room. People, people can sense authenticity and they can sense if you're not being authentic. But by the same token, you can't leave it there. Because if you're talking to somebody for whom 
that kind of motivation doesn't resonate, if you leave it there, you're going to be walking right out the door again and you're not going to get anything done. And so being able to identify what matters to the other people in the room, what drives them and what motivates them, and to be able to frame the case for what you're proposing in terms that they're going to understand and they're going to speak to their motivations is incredibly valuable. So how do you do that? Say Facebook uh, wants to get off coal and, and run on cleaner energy. It's going to cost a little more. You have to convince uh, some financial person that that's good for the company, good for profits, ultimately. How do you do that? It's a great question. Well, first of all, it doesn't always cost more. That's an important note. I think it's a really exciting time because clean energy is becoming really cost-effective now, which is really exciting. But I think, to your point... One of the things that is important to think about is that people think about risk and people think about reliability. And some of these topics are complicated and matter a lot when you're talking about kind of energy source you're using, for example. And so bringing in some of these nuances into the conversation so it's not just you know X cents per kilowatt hour versus Y cents per kilowatt hour, but it's really more about the context of the decision that you're making and what impact that's going to have on the long-term viability of your infrastructure. Charlotte McCausland, uh, Lyrica mentioned being authentic. Uh, for people who want to get into a fast-growing clean tech company, uh, how do they present themselves? What, what are some tips for going in there and, and sort of trying to pr- convince someone that they should be hired for Solar City or someone else? Yeah, I think it's the same in clean tech as it is in any industry with any job. Um, people want to believe you, that you are really there, you're, you have staying power, you're interested in joining and, and contributing to the company long term. So again, going back to things like language, if you know the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour, you, you don't necessarily need to go to, to grad school uh, to learn the language or to, to bone up on you know, particular subject matter. But if you can show that you've done your homework, um, I think that can help convey your authenticity. So people need to convince themselves, uh, be, be convincing that they don't want to just work for Solar City because it's cool and Elon right. Musk is the chairman, right? That's Something right. like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Keely Wax, is it more important to have a great boss or work for a cool company? <laughs> well, hopefully you can do both. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I think it ultimately depends on where you are in your career. But I think early in your career, I would say focus on working for great people. Um, mentors can be incredibly powerful and uh, beneficial, not only for the short term, uh, not only for your short term life, but also for, for, for the long term. These are folks that are going to be um, guiding and uh, modeling the behavior you're going to have in your career forever. And the, and the sooner you can have great bosses and mentors, the, the better, better you'll be. And, and a great boss and a great mentor is someone that... Um, is truly looking out for your development. Is not just seeing you as a resource to get to a, another objective. It's someone that really is going to invest into your, your development personally and professionally. And when you want someone to be your mentor, do you sort of like, does that just kind of quietly develop? Or do you say, hey, will you be my mentor? I mean, I'm a big fan of asking. I mean, I, there's no harm that ever comes out of just asking. And I think you'll be surprised. I mean, I think most people want to help, right? Most people want a mentor. Like, it's, it's, it's actually it's the best compliment you could ever have is asking to be a mentor, right? So if you find someone in your life um, or someone that you admire from afar, don't ever be afraid to ask. I, I, I just, what's the worst they say? No. 
Great. Yeah. Uh, Keely Wax, you've talked about uh, life balance and that you were working for some high growth startups and your life was a little out of balance in terms of you know, stress, partying. So tell us how you were out of balance and got back in balance. Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, I've, I've been driven by a philosoph- philosophy um, that I measure my life in four, four boxes, right? Um, my own physical health, um, family and community, financial and then ego, right? Ambition, accomplishment. So um, when I was at BrightSource, which was the solar firm I was at, it was a super, super fast growth. High, uh, high, uh, we, we raised $850 million. We built the largest solar plant in the world. Um, you know, venture, venture funds, uh, it was crazy. I mean, my life was totally out of balance. And so um, as passionate as I was about solar, as passionate as I was about all these other things, my job was dictating everything in my life, and it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't healthy. Um, so when this opportunity to join Cliff Bar came about, um, it wasn't a direct link to climate, although Cliff is incredibly um, thoughtful about the way we, we handle sustainability and really a leader in the field. It was the opportunity to go work for a place that really matched my passion points beyond just climate and also matched my passion points around balance and family and, and physical activity. So that was the right place for me. Lyrica McTiernan, how about you in terms of you know, finding that balance? Facebook is known as a pretty demanding place. And if, do you want to be like VP in five years? And is that going to work? <laughs> you know, I think, I think balance matters a huge amount. I completely agree. And I think for me, you know, I've found that being at a place like Facebook, there's a huge um, emphasis on doing good work and not as much of an emphasis on, you know, you must be at your desk from nine to five. I mean, some people are at their desk from nine to five. Some people are at their desk from eight to six. You know, I think it varies based on the team that you're on, but there's really this sense that the work that you do is what matters and doing good work is what matters. And you will know when you do good work and the people around you will see when you do good work. And, you know, yes, it's a lot of work. Um, but, you know, about to have my second kid. And, like, for me, it, it's working. And I think that that's a testament to a company that really is trying to make it work for people who have families. And increasingly, I think that's something that companies are realizing is important if you want people to stick around. And for companies like this, it matters that people stick around. Because once you understand the business and you understand the people who are involved in all the decisions, you know, if you leave, it's, it's a big deal. Do you sleep with your cell phone next to your bed and check your news feed when you wake up the first thing in the morning? No, but I had to make it a point to not do that. <laughs> Charlotte McCausland, uh, Solar City engineering company, uh, do you feel like there's a need to be an engineer uh, to, make, to sort of make it to the top? Uh, and, and what are some of the different personality types that, that can find a place in a pl- company like Solar City? Um, I think you do not need to be an engineer. I think, again, going back to this language theme, I think you do need to learn how to speak the language and talk about um, things like um, demand charges and kilowatt hours. Um, that's, that's what our business is. Um, but I'm on the commercial sales team, and we have a team of proposal writers. We have a team of uh, analysts who run the financial models. We have accountants. We have salespeople who go out and you know are the face of the company to the customers. Um, and then we have our, our financial team. Um, there's there's many different skill sets represented. Any women on the executive committee at, at Solar City? Um, we do not have any women in the C-suite yet. 
And <laughs> but so, we're working on it. Uh, and is there, do you feel like there's the same career path, upward mobility for women as there are for men in a, in a company that's kind of, you know, solar is kind of, in, you know, more, I don't know, in, installation. It's kind of a guy thing. <laughs> um, I think energy, the energy industry as a whole um, is very male dominated. And you go to these trade shows and conferences and um, the line for the men's room is longer than the lines for, for the women's room, which is something you rarely see. <laughs> um, and that's reflected at SolarCity um, and I think a lot of other companies like that. Um, but it's a known issue. And there are some formal programs that have been put in place to encourage women to grow and connect them with mentors. Um, and I have met some of the smartest, strongest female leaders that uh, in my career to date at Solar City. Lyrica McTiernan, sometimes uh, luck or serendipity plays a role. Tell us how you actually got into Facebook. Sure. So as I mentioned, I was working at the Goldman Environmental Prize and going to business school. And lo and behold, one of my colleagues at business school, one of my fellow students, uh, her friend worked at Facebook. And she came up to me one day and said, hey, you know, I heard there's a VP over there who's really interested in having Facebook expand what it's doing around sustainability. Do you think we should write him an email and, you know, mention that we're business school students and we have some interesting ideas? And I said, sure, why not? You know, don't have anything to lose. So we sat down and said, what would you write to a VP at Facebook about sustainability that would be compelling? And we wrote an email and were somewhat shocked when he replied and said, do you guys want to come down for a meeting at our Palo Alto office? At the time, we were in Palo Alto. And we said, absolutely, and sat down and brainstormed some more and said, what do you say in an hour-long meeting to a VP at Facebook about sustainability that'll be compelling? And went down and had a meeting, and it went well. And we were brought on initially as contractors to see whether there was a there there. They had no sustainability team at the time. And so it was a bit of a leap of faith for that company to figure out how do they want to really start a team that's focused on this. And for us, it was a bit of a leap of faith. I had to leave my job at the Goldman Prize and try this out. Didn't know where it was going to go. But after a year, we were able to demonstrate that there was enough value in what we were doing that it really did need to become a permanent part of what the company does. And as I mentioned, now it's a team of about 10 folks. And so fast forward five years, and we've got a huge amount of momentum going. But... For me, I think it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time, yes, but with the right preparation and the right skill set so that those conversations, when they were presented to me as an opportunity, could go well and could go in the right directions and could land me where I am today. Erica McTiernan is the Sustainability Manager at Facebook. Our other guests today at Climate One are Keely Wax from Cliff Bar and Charlotte McCausland from Solar City. I'm Greg Dalton. It's time for our lightning round. We're going to ask a series of uh, brief yes or no, uh, single answer, single word questions, uh, starting with Keely Wax. Uh, yes or no, packaging of Cliff Bar products is not environmentally friendly. True. Uh, also, Keely Wax, Cliff Bars are loaded with calories that will make people fat who don't exercise rigorously. <laughs> <laughs> they are, uh, they are uh, calorie-rich, uh, for sure. Um, <laughs> Charlotte McCoslin, it's cheaper to buy rooftop solar outright, if you have the money, than to lease it. False. Uh, Lyrica McTiernan, Greenpeace's campaign on Facebook to unfriend coal 
prompted Facebook to make a faster change to clean energy to run its data centers? Mm, I would say prompts are always helpful. I'll take that as a yes. Uh, <laughs> Keely Wax, uh, yes or no? Sharks can, you're a lifelong surfer, as you mentioned. Sharks can smell cliff bars miles away. <laughs> if there's blood in them. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, Charlotte McCausland, Silicon Valley has a long way to go before women have equal opportunity for equal pay. That is true. Tesla founder Elon Musk is the chairman of SolarCity. Therefore, every employee at SolarCity should get a discount on a new Tesla. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Facebook, Facebook uh, employees can get discounts on Tesla, too. Yeah, Why not for everybody? No yeah. Everybody needs a discount on a Tesla. How did they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them... Uh, let's talk about the importance of culture. Uh, Keely Wax, you were at PG&E. Uh, the culture there was a certain type, not for you. So talk about the importance of culture fit. People often th- think about looking for a job. They think about the company, and culture is a little hard to get at. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it comes back to that people thing and mentoring. I mean, you may have this ideal of what a company is because of what they produce or what they do, but th- the people in that organization may not be a good fit for you, right? Um, um, it doesn't mean that they're bad people or that they're doing bad things or that they're, that they're not people you want to associate with. It's just people who you don't necessarily want to work with. It's not a culture you want to work with. I mean, you look at me. I'm, I'm a pretty casual guy, right? I'm a lifelong surfer. I, I say gnarly, right? <laughs> at a place like PG&E, like, that was charming for, for <laughs> folks there. But um, it was never a place where I, I felt like this was going to be a place where I'm going to be forever. But it was a great place to learn, and I don't, I don't ever regret being there. But it wasn't a place that, like, Keely Wax, surfer guy, was, like, ever really a perfect fit, you know? Charlotte McCausland, how do you describe the culture at Solar City, and how can you kind of identify what a culture of a company is if you're not inside it? Uh, great question. I think, you know, Solar City is a really fast-growing company, uh, with a huge sales organization. Um, so I would say the culture of sales is predominant. Um, and the best way to figure out what a culture feels like before you join is to find at least three people who work there and ask them. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, I'm curious, how um, did you orient a interest in environmentalism or sustainable practices, um, how did you go from just an, an, that general desire to the, your specific careers? We'd like to tackle that one. Well, for me, for me, I tried a little bit of everything. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time doing environmental education work. I went into the green building sector. I worked in an NGO. And I think it was very helpful for me to understand what I liked about each of those things and what I didn't. And I think it can be, some people know exactly what they want to do right out of the gate, and kudos to them, that's amazing. But if you don't, don't worry about it. Try things out and see what it is about the things that you like that you really like. And that is what I did, and I think I would have been shocked if you told me in high school that I was going to be working in tech. Mm -hmm. I would not have thought that. I would have thought I would have stayed in environmental education, but when I went into that field, I realized it wasn't what I really wanted. So don't be afraid to try things out. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate um, One. Hi, I'm Mika. And I was wondering, for all of you guys in general, 
what other major sustainable companies you guys are working with. And then for Charlotte, I hear a lot that solar panels are attacked for um, the fields. Solar fields are quote-unquote ugly and like take up too much space. So with that, how do you combat that? And then also, have you thought of using uh, space and solar at all and pros and cons with that? So might first clarify, rooftop solar versus other kinds of solar, Charlotte. Okay, so I'm going to speak as Charlotte McCausland, not as um, Solar City here. Um, I think that um, people have their own taste, and uh, some people think a solar field is ugly. Some people don't. I think as things become more common, people get used to seeing them and become more aware of the benefits of solar, a solar plant in your backyard versus a coal plant in your backyard, um, those sentiments will change. Um, I'm not personally a big fan of clear-cutting to build solar. That's that uh, ground-mount solar. That's a, a personal you know, pain point of mine that I, I know is happening in some places. I would say we're aware of that, and there's a solar city is aware of that, and they're, uh, you know, a lot of times when we're building a big ground mount project somewhere, there will be like big community gatherings um, in the process in order to discuss, you know, why is this happening? Why is this field getting developed? And um, is this really something we want? So I think community engagement's a part of that, going to, you know, town meetings and things like that and, and hearing questions and listening and showing empathy is, is always the right way to build consensus. Keely Wax, you were part of the biggest uh, solar plant in the world. Some environmentalists were upset about that. There were some sensitive turtles. Yeah, it was gnarly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we built the largest solar plant in the world, uh, in the Mojave, and we, there was a green-on-green green battle. Um, there were folks that were supportive because they thought climate change was the most pressing issue of our time, and we should be building as much solar as possible. And there were those that were fans of terrestrial creatures, and they didn't want any, any disruption. And frankly, I totally understand both perspectives on it. I do think, though, that the scale required in order to address climate change is one that most people still don't quite get. And um, there are going to be compromises. It's just, it's just a fact. Um, so... If we want to address this issue, if we want to get ahead of it, then we're going to have to, we're going to, have to build at scale, whether it's rooftop, whether it's ground-mounted on, and, and in the desert or in a, in a, by local communities, we've got to do it. One other thing I want, to, I want to answer the question that was asked. I think the other area, so this whole conversation has been focused around energy, and I think that's a critical component to fighting climate. But one of the reasons why I changed from energy to food uh, recently is because I think food um, and our food systems are an untapped area uh, when it comes to addressing broader sustainability issues, but especially climate. So if you think about what's happening um, in some of the southern hemispheric areas where they're clear-cutting forests to, uh, to, for ag purposes, right? Um, that is having a, much, it's having a bigger effect, actually, on climate than the energy uses. So, um, and food, and people are starting to get so wise to that around food. And I think for careers, food's a really interesting place for y'all to look, um, so, you know, that's, I'm, I'm putting a plug in. And, and that's actually the reason why Cliff brought me over from, from energy. They said, we're seeing what's happening in food right now is what happened in energy the last 10 to 15 years. We want to really leverage your, your experience and your skill set to kind of help see through that change. The head of the IPCC said a few years ago, the UN group of climate scientists, that what you eat is, can be more important than what you drive. And, and uh, so it's, uh, it certainly connects with people, certainly here in the Bay Area. Uh, let's go to our last audience question. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? I'm Jason. I'm just curious. Um, I'm thinking of getting a master's in sustainability management. 
at uh, Columbia. I was wondering what uh, what college universities do you guys think have like the best programs, like sustainability programs, or should I get an MBA? Should I get you know like what's like a good path for education? Who'd like to tackle that one? Oh, I can start. I I think I probably won't call out specific programs, but I will say the interesting thing about sustainability is that there is no one path, (laughs) which makes it great and makes it really challenging as well because there's no specific route to follow. Um, But what's nice about that, I mean, if you look at our team, we have people with somebody with a background in chemical engineering. We have an architect. We have a hydrological engineer. We have um, a couple of us from the business, business community guy who leads, he leads our team actually has a background in computer science. And so you can kind of come at this from any number of different angles. And I think the key is identifying what is it that you want to have be your specialty and go deep, go deep there. So you can have a real deep skill set that you can bring to a team and say, Hey, I can really come and help your team by providing this specific set of skills. And that way, you know, you can really kind of fill a gap that that team might have. So again, find what makes you passionate and follow that. And interdisciplinary. We created this problem. A lot of the institutions that we've built in this country after World War II are focused in a way, and climate cuts across all those institutions in a way. So if you can see across boundaries and disciplines, those are the people that are going to really help us solve this climate thing that challenges institutions and our thinking in so many ways. We have to wrap it up there. Let's give our thanks to Lyrica McTiernan, Keely Wax and Charlotte McCoslin for joining us today at this part. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. When we think of green jobs, what comes to mind? Solar energy, recycling, electric cars? But what about taking a boring, everyday product, say, household cleaners, and building a brand that's earth-friendly from power source to packaging? It may not be sexy, but Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, believes you don't have to trash the planet to make your dishes sparkle. My business is really dominated by very large international, you know, $90 billion companies and things like that. Really huge companies that don't move particularly quickly. And as an upstart within this business that's now big enough to, that at least we're established, really the role we play is we're an innovator and a challenger brand. And what that allows us to do is actually catalyze our competitors to actually follow our lead on a lot of things. And so we do that with the way that we use plastics and materials and take toxic stuff out of uh, cleaning products. But uh, we're now actually starting to get into the the energy business as a uh, we're, we're building a factory in the city of Chicago that's going to uh, generate its own power. And so we're building utility-scale wind, lots of solar. And so it's been an interesting experience from that side of of the business to go through what it takes to actually try to generate your own power. That's Adam Lowry, co-founder and chief greenskeeper with Method Products, speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now back to the second half of our program with Greg Dalton at the Commonwealth Club. We turn now to tips on how to get a job in the green economy and what are the big growth areas. Leonard Adler is CEO of the Green Jobs Network, and Catherine Walsh is Director of Student Environmental Resource Center at UC Berkeley. Please welcome them to Climate One. So Catherine Walsh, I'd like to begin with you. Talk about uh, the soft skills. Obviously, 
graduates from UC Berkeley have big brains and high GPAs and lots of skills. What are the soft skills they need to enter the workforce today? A lot of what we talk about are, especially um, in a very social media-driven, tech-heavy society, is not losing sight of skills around public speaking, um, meetings, being able to have meetings and conversations with folks. Um, Really, that kind of interpersonal skills uh, is extremely important. Um, Things like writing, writing um, full, not shorthand, learning how to be a strong writer is still a really important skill to have, um, and we don't want to lose sight of that. Even getting an internship, learning what it means to kind of have responsibility in the workforce, um, you can pick up a lot just by being in a workplace in terms of um, culture, that we've talked a lot about culture today, and that's really important. And there's often a, a fair amount of talk that the emerging generation don't have these social skills because they text each other when they're in the same room. They can't write a complete sentence. <laughs> so is that a challenge for you to get people to speak English to humans? <laughs> It can be, but there's also other perks that come along with those changes. Um, I see the way and the speed at which youth are communicating with each other, the way they rise up when things come um, up in terms of when they see something unjust or they see something that's wrong. They're speaking up, they're gathering, they're connecting at an even faster rate. It just might not always be in person. It might be online. And so what we struggle with is how do we still have both and still show that both can be really effective. Sometimes you need some that's more online, shorthand, um, not in person. But other times you really need bodies in the streets still. And so doing things like activism and organizing training with our students so that they still have those kind of organizational skills um, and can be effective leaders in both sectors. Yeah, clicktivism, just yeah, clicking on something doesn't change the world, right? Uh, Leonard Adler, uh, you run a, a vast uh, green jobs website. So for someone who wants to get in, into this growing green economy, what are, how, how could they go about finding that job? Um, well, I think the last panel actually covered a number of the different tips. Um, so one of them is to really learn and explore and really find yourself. Um, so really to determine exactly, basically, the green economy is so vast. Just from the last panel, we've had folks talk about everything from transportation, from food systems, from buildings, um, energy efficiency, solar energy. So it's very, very diverse. And then the types of jobs that you can find in all these areas are equally diverse. So whether you're actually you have, you're interested in law, accounting, you're an engineer, um, communications, the number of opportunities are also quite vast. So really finding out how you can connect with the green economy is really the, the first thing I would say um, as part of that journey because it really is a process. And again, the last panel was, I think those were really excellent case studies, how it's, it's really it's a personalized journey to find your place um, in this broad sector. Find your own place. Uh, Catherine Walsh, what are some of the hot areas where you see the, a lot of Cal graduates going, where there's a lot of new jobs being created? What are some of the, the, the big areas? Energy is still huge, especially in this area of the country. Um, but really the emerging one and the one that I see the most passion around is food, which was mentioned in our last panel. Um, and I'm not just talking about food production. I'm really talking about food justice and equity. Um, a lot of hunger is not caused by production issues. It's caused by bad distribution of food, bad access, not equal access, not culturally appropriate foods. And we're not doing enough as a global community to really tackle those issues around food, uh, making sure that everyone is having access to healthy, affordable foods. 
Um, we still need to focus on production, but at Berkeley, because we're not Davis, which is where more of the agricultural studies happening, our students are really focused more on the justice, the policies, the equity issues around food. So you can get involved in food and not have to be a farmer. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, there's a student-run grocery store at Cal. I can only imagine what a student-run <laughs> grocery store looks like. Uh, but tell us about how that operates. I remember uh, starting my job at Cal in 2010, and I was blown away that students were, had come up with their own business model to run a food cooperative on their own. When I was in college, I was trying to just get recycling bins on campus, and they do this incredible model where they're both trying to sell local, affordable, healthy, sustainable foods to the campus and the local community, but they're also using that store to educate folks. It's really an educational mission that drives that store. Um, The store is completely student-run and volunteer-based, except for one paid operation manager, and they have hundreds of volunteers who give their time to managing that store, and students are really learning at a very early age how to run their own business, how to run their own nonprofit, and it never ceases to inspire me six years later. And is it healthy food, or is it all five-hour energy? It's healthy, yeah. It's it's. They really work very directly with their suppliers. They often have to change their suppliers. They work with their suppliers to make sure that they're getting the types of foods in that store that fit their mission. We've heard a lot lately about the pay gap. So Catherine Walsh, uh, is the clean tech area any better or worse for women earning, what, 70 cents on the dollar versus men? What I'm finding encouragement is, and this was kind of mentioned later, is there are more programs that are being created because that gap has been identified and there are entities that are trying to do work around that. So, for example, local Bay Area nonprofit Grid Alternatives recently launched a women in solar program, and they're really trying to recruit more women, train more women in solar. Um, We see a lot of new STEM pop-ups, whether they're centers or um, programs, trying to draw more women in, um, women-identified folks. So uh, there's still a long way to go. And um, while tech isn't my passion, one of the things I will say is sustainability in particular actually tends to have... I find more women in it, um, which is very inspiring to me. Most of the sustainability folks at UC Berkeley are women. Most of the folks in sustainability and higher ed are women. And that is an empowering place for me to learn. And so I don't want it to be total gloom and doom story. There are a lot of community environmentalists that are being led by women in the community. And so definitely look for those mentors. Leonard Adler? In terms of the, the equity, uh, pay equity for men and women, can you have any visibility into that through your Green Jobs Network? I don't know if I have exactly on that, but I actually did want to actually mention about the issue of diversity. The last time I was actually here, um, there was a panel called Green 2.0. There was a group that actually is really working to push philanthropy, the nonprofit sector, to make sure the environmental movement is as diverse as possible. And I met someone um, who was on the panel. His name is Hank Williams, who unfortunately died too young. He, um, he died a few months ago, so I wanted to just acknowledge him. So he was a trailblazer more with diversity in tech, but he was also on the panel around environmental to say, hey, a lot of these struggles, there's a lot of parallels to them, and are there things we can learn from them and ways to work together on that? So um, that just wanted to acknowledge that. And Leonard Adler, there's often a hidden job market. There's jobs that are posted. How can people get out to the jobs that aren't posted, networking, et cetera, because there's sort of a hidden job market? 
Yeah, that, that's definitely important. And, and I would have, think there would be a couple ways to think about that. Some organizations, like basically job boards, there's certainly jobs posted on job boards. Um, so certainly I would make that a foundation. But to some extent, um, they're not all posted on there. And you know, if you think about there's some organizations that may be resource constrained. They may not have a lot of time. Um, they might not have an HR department. If you're a small startup, maybe you don't have that. So they, but they have jobs. And I actually um, posted something in my LinkedIn group. So I didn't use a formal job board, but it's needed to get the word out about that. So, so a couple tips in terms of trying to tap into that uh, hidden job market. So one, really be try to uncover companies that you'd want to work for in the space. And so mention you know, kind of some of these um, panel sessions, but also another big opportunity are larger conferences. And there's a number that come through San Francisco, just to give you a, a couple of points. So one is called the Green Festivals. They have literally hundreds of vendors, and it's really pitched more as a kind of a consumer show, but every organization there could be a potential employer for you. So to research them in advance and use that as a networking opportunity, there's a large solar conference that comes into San Francisco every year, Inner Solar. So those are just a couple. I'll hopefully go over some more later on. But um, there's, there's a, really, to be able to tap into um, the job market beyond job boards is something, you know, can't encourage you to do that enough. Let's ask you, we've heard today about the importance of a personal narrative. So Catherine Walsh, how did you get to where you are? And what were some of the key turning and decision points where maybe you took a, went down a road you didn't expect to? Um, I was really passionate about animals growing up. And it was in high school I started making connections between people and the environment, really around public health and environmental justice that switched, made me switch gears. And when I got to college... College is like a playground for involvement if you're a student. Usually a college just has so many opportunities, whether it's volunteers, student organizations, internships, for you to really test anything out, find what works for you, and get that experience. And I found a passion in sustainability in higher education. But I also graduated at the height of the economic crash in 2008. And so I ended up working in special ed in a high school for about a year and a half before getting my job at Berkeley. I was also unemployed for a little bit. And in all those spaces, I was able to find um, experience or skills or really values that helped me get to Berkeley. Things like working with youth, things like working in education, um, even grit and stamina around being unemployed. Um, Taking those kind of personal experiences to a job interview really helped me at Berkeley. And so... Yeah, don't ever despair if your path takes a turn. Sometimes that actually makes you more valuable and interesting as a candidate to an employer. Leonard Adler, how about your path to where you are today? How much time do we have left today, (laughs) Greg? (laughs) Um, I I come to this actually um, from an interest in poverty. Um, I know this topic's brought brought up actually the issue of food. Um, When I was growing up, my family's on food stamps, so we were hungry. And so that um, certainly... uh, very personal connection. And from that background, I made it to um, Stanford, um, which is not the typical Stanford um, student profile. The, our financial aid package was more than my family was getting. It was a family of six and felt extraordinarily um, fortunate to be at a place like that. And during my education, really learned about issues um, broader than my own experience growing up. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way I could use some of these gifts, these opportunities to contribute. And during my career, it was a little bit more on the anti-poverty side. Um, I've had internships like the National Coalition for the Homeless, for example. Um, and, but over time, um, I also ended up getting a law degree and did some things in the legal community and realized I wanted to get back to things a little bit closer to my heart. And so I left. And so as part of that, I, did a, I was doing a do- job search and realized that um, when you're at an institution like a Berkeley, you have tr- there's at least some, you'll have resources for a job search. And when you're, when you're not necessarily there, it's a little bit tougher. And so... What I wanted to do is really um, 
kind of just to uh, really share what I'd been learning in my own job search journey and fig- trying to determine if there's a way that together, all of us who are on this journey could really create something bigger to help us all out. And that was really the genesis for Green Jobs Network. And so from that's really, um, it's grown far beyond my expectations in terms of, you know, there's like 100,000 people on the LinkedIn group. There's people who will share job postings with each other, share tips with each other and help each other out. So that's been, like everyone has said, it's a really unique journey for everybody. I'm a member. I can attest to that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, setbacks. People in Silicon Valley often talk about fail early, fail often, and failure is a badge of courage there, unlike a lot of other places. But Catherine Walsh, what is the time where you, you had a setback or you feel like, oh, a failure, but you, but you learned from it? It was probably the two years after I graduated college and just being unemployed, living with my parents, mm. um, we're the boomerang generation, as they call us, um, and not working in my field after being kind of a big fish at my college. Um, that took a huge hit to my confidence. It took me a really long time to recover. Um, and I would say, thankfully, I f- didn't give up. Um, I found Berkeley and I've made the most of it to really spend my six years getting as much um, experience, get trying to get my confidence back, but really also rely on people like mentors, family, friends to kind of remind me that I was not a lost cause and that I had a lot to give and um, still really focus on. Leonard Adler, sometimes in this country, there's a notion that people who are poor, like does you know, it's a failure that they didn't work hard, et cetera. Was that an issue at all growing up on food stamps? Is that, did you ever encounter people that, that looked at you that way at Stanford or consider that a, a setback? No, I mean, I, have, I think those issues are more internal. Um, and so I think there's people who, you know, if there's anyone listening, you know, I, I would encourage you to not, not screen yourself out or not, not change how you value yourself because of messages you might get. Talking about green jobs with Leonard Adler from the Green Jobs Network and Catherine Walsh from UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Catherine Walsh, a lot of the headlines these days about uh, increasing tuition costs, UC system, student debt, uh, the, the terrible, you know, the very challenging student debt situation. So how is that pressuring career choices of the students as you advise? Yeah, that's something we talk to students a lot about who might have a passion in environmentalism, but they're feeling like they may just need to get any job to be able to pay the bills. So one of the things we have at UC Berkeley is we have a campus green fund, and through that we fund, um, we've now funded in the last few years more than 250 paid student internships for students to focus on their passion, but still get paid to do that work. And so we really value paying students for their work and their experience so that they don't have to make that choice. Because especially in college, it's already really hard enough, and you're seeing more first-gen students, you're seeing more transfers, you're seeing parent students. They're dealing with a lot of financial constraints, a lot of pressure. They're having to balance school and work. So as Folks who work in education, we should be doing our darndest to make that college experience as supportive and passion-focused as possible. And otherwise, maybe you should not be working in higher ed. Leonard <laughs> yeah. Adler? Yeah, no, just, just to add, because I've certainly been on some of those career paths where they don't pay very well. So again, I think it's important to make sure that you take care of yourself before you're trying to take care of a cause or, or something broader. Um, so certainly being mindful of not um, leveraging yourself too much because, again, you, the best resource you have to contribute to this movement is yourself. And so you really have to prioritize taking care of that, um, whether it's balance, like folks have spoken about, or financially. So it's definitely, uh, that's, you know, I can't stress that enough. 
couple of quick lightning round questions uh, for each of you. Uh, Leonard Adler, uh, yes or no, green jobs failed to live up to their initial hype. Um, I would say true. Uh, Catherine Walsh, very few Cal graduates who pursue clean tech careers will earn as much money as the Cal football coach. False. I have hope. Leonard Adler, relationships are still key to getting jobs, even in the era of social media. Yes. Last one for Catherine Walsh. Cal graduates are much better prepared for clean tech careers than Stanford graduates. True. For the record, I'm a Stanford grad. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. How'd they do? Let's give them a round of applause. I think they... Leonard Adler, you talk about people who are looking for a job always think about being interviewed. People should also turn that around and interview the company. How do you do that? Um, no, that, that's a great point. Um, I, I actually spent a little time working for Net Impact, and um, for folks that may not be familiar with it, they're an organization that really um, focuses on promoting using business for social good. And so that's definitely a topic that gets discussed a lot. So there are some third-party um, sources you can research a company to find out what are their business practices. Are they an ethical company? Um, so I would say there's, I would go to some third-party sources to review their sustainability record. And Catherine Walsh, uh, this idea of data permanence these days, people growing up uh, in the era of Facebook, et cetera, uh, are they aware of uh, all the stuff, all their tweets and Facebook posts and how that might affect their future career prospects? Is that something you counsel them on? Some do and some don't. What's going to be interesting is someday all the folks that are experiencing that now are actually going to be the hirers or in the positions of power. And if they're already on the same page or that's their experience, that could change. Maybe it won't bother employers as much if they read something online. Right now, though, it's still pretty serious. So my general recommendation is to know that anything you put online, literally anything, could come back to haunt you later. And so just really think about how you're utilizing that. I mean, even just how you'll grow as a person. I sometimes read my old things that I would say online, nothing bad, but just even the way I spoke. I've grown up a lot, and so I'll kind of be embarrassed by some of that. So just kind of try to have a thoughtful mind um, when you're using online things. Use your privacy settings, as they say. Uh, we're going to go to audience questions. I'd like to include you in this conversation uh, for these experts on, on career track. So, Hi, my name is Ileana. Um, there hasn't been too much talk about the difference between uh, working at a nonprofit and working at a for-profit company um, in the environmental sector. Um, so I was just kind of wondering um, if you have any insight, thoughts, or considerations for job seekers who are looking um, down either of those paths. Thank you. I'd like to tackle that. So one thing I'd say one difference if, to generalize a lot would be compensation. That's one um, between the two sectors, nonprofit potentially being a, a, um, less compensated than the private sector. And then there may be things around, um, you know, kind of a, from a cause standpoint. Certainly many nonprofits, you know, they are energized, you know, through and through by a cause and a, and a higher purpose. And certainly some businesses have that too, um, no doubt. But certainly you're going to probably find that a little bit more likely within the nonprofit sector. And then... Um, Again, potentially, it's going to vary a lot, but it could be um, aspects of the culture. Um, you know, again, when you're working for a private company, for example, a public one, you have quarterly earnings to, to do. There may be some pressures related to that. That nonprofit sector may be a little bit different um, in terms of the internal culture. So, but it's a good question. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, 
Uh, hi, my name is Taylor. Um, in terms of an educational path, things I keep hearing nowadays are you really need two degrees to make a difference with how competitive the job market is. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on that in terms of pursuing higher educational paths? Is grad school necessary, Catherine Moff? For me, it has not been. Um, I, not to like, try to be honest here, but I'm a well-respected person in my field, and I don't have a graduate degree. I have a lot of experience. I did get a certificate from our extension school just to further my education. I've also looked into getting my lead green associates, but for some, it, it is needed. Um, for other paths, it's, it's not. And you are, you're right, you are hearing that more often. And I still think there's a lot of graduate schools that value you getting some work experience before just diving into grad school for the sake of a second degree. Um, what I potentially want to go back to school now for, now that I'm almost, that I am 30, is very different than what I would have found at 22. And it might have been a mistake for me. How about the graduates coming out of Cal? Do a lot of them plan to get an MBA graduate degree? They, and some of them know where they're going. Some of them go straight to PhD. We have, we have that. It's really common, in, um, especially when you're dealing with Cal. Um, there's pros and cons to both. I really just value real-life world experience. I, I, I've worked now in higher ed for six years, and it is a bubble. Academia is a bubble. And it's really important, um, especially if you've already come from privilege, that you're experiencing a very different type of lifestyle at some t- time in your life. Leonard Adler, graduate degree necessary in today's job market. Is, is the MA the new BA? Uh, I mean, I, th- I, th- I thought you summarized that very well, which is if there's certain occupation for which it's a prerequisite, um, so, for example, if you were going to be a lawyer, a JD would yeah. be generally a prerequisite. <laughs> if, if that's not the case, um, again, I, I wouldn't... Um, necessarily create additional um, obstacles or feelings like you're not good enough to do something. And so, again, definitely work experience can count for a lot in terms of, you know, if I'm doing hiring, I want to see what the person's done. Um, that, that means a lot, not just what degrees they have. On the going straight from undergrad to graduate, I worked for five years before I went to a master's degree at Columbia, and I thought that the people who went straight in, I kind of knew why I was there more than the people who went, went straight in. Uh, Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Um, just sort of piggybacking off that last question, um, f- and you know, uh, finding your own path has been a, a theme that we've heard um, during this panel and the previous one. Um, what ways aside from grad school would you advise for somebody you know who doesn't have a technical skill set that they can apply, but has an interest in being a part of the, the you know, green sustainable movement, how, how, does, how does one break into that field without necessarily having like the, the skill set or, the, or the, the, the degree to back it up? Leonard Adler, I encounter people like this quite a bit. I'm passionate about climate change. I want it to be part of my job. How do I get in? <laughs> right. Um, that, that could be its own whole topic. But um, what briefly I'd say is, again, part of this is knowing yourself. So again, what, what topic areas? And part of that may be an exploration process. So again, if you think of all the different things that environmental movement, sustainability movement, climate change, all those different areas, what things are of interest to you? Because you're going to have to kind of have some degree of specializing, position yourself to really find that match. That's one piece. And then the other piece is the skill sets. So certainly, again, just to reiterate, you, know, you can find jobs in this space that are not just technical jobs. 
you know, and I, and I can point out post things posted you know, today, accounting jobs, graphic design jobs, marketing jobs, et cetera. So you can find these opportunities, but you have to determine, and again, what's, what unique contributions do you want to make to the organization? Because it's really a hiring process is helping the employer meet their needs. And so what can you do to really help facilitate that? And then obviously there's big pieces around networking, networking both online, you know, there's lots of great online um, opportunities to do that, and then in-person networking. Um, you can join chapters, for example, of local organizations, just to give an example to The American Solar Energy Society has local chapters. You can join one of those, you know, potentially take on leadership roles in that and find ways to kind of make your way and get known and get some additional um, kind of experience in your background to position yourself. And there's Young Professionals in Energy, energy. which... Uh, uh, Charlotte McCoslin is, is involved in. I, I'm so glad you asked that too, because I think there's a lot of, um, in environmental work, there's this notion of technology is going to be the solution that fixes everything. And we can kind of keep going with the status quo because we're going to come up with something to fix that status quo. What I would, and I think youth are the best at this, is disrupt why do we have to continue things the way they are and find problems to just fix or make okay the things the way they are? And so what I would say is find your ways to find, uh, have the foresight to find a problem that's coming down the line or, f- or f- prevent something from even happening. Um, there's so many volunteer or opportunities in the Bay Area. You don't have to actually work in this. You can start by getting involved. So like 350 Bay Area just started their first, first youth chapter part of 350 barrier that's a great way to start making inroads and they're very much on a forward-thinking disruptive pathway we haven't talked about that yet we'll get to this audience question but leonard adler creating your own opportunity yeah i was just gonna add one or two more things just because you mentioned how common this question is just to add one or two things so yeah exactly creating your own opportunities the other thing to keep in mind is you know you yourself could be a change agent by creating something. You know, again, here in the Bay Area, obviously the place for, for startups. So again, Green Jobs Network was something I created that's helped provide my own way to contribute. So certainly there's a whole ecosystem of supports to help you get a startup um, created. And then the other piece would be kind of tapping into other startups that are just getting um, really beginning because they may have needs and maybe a little bit more flexible in their hiring processes. And to give you an example, every year there are business plan competitions, and so there are going to be very um, new companies in their life cycle. So an example is the Cleantech Open. Every year there are some you know, quality new enterprises that are getting um, you know, small grants. So to find out who those organizations are and, and network with them, and, and to give you an example of one from another business plan competition, Revolution Foods. You know, they won a competition, I don't know, maybe now more than five, ten years ago, and so now they're, one, they're a leading group to provide healthy meals in schools. And if you go to their website right now, you'll see 50 jobs on their website. But earlier on, you know, they were just starting. So again, there's a whole life cycle for these. So startups are definitely something to look into. We have to wrap it up there. I'd like to thank Leonard Adler from the Green Jobs Network and Catherine Walsh, a career advisor at UC Berkeley, for joining us here at Climate One and our audience in the room and on air. You can listen to the podcast and iTunes and at climateone.org. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you, everybody. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.